If you like listening to Warriors in Their Own Words, check out our other show, the Medal of Honor podcast. The link is in the show description. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, in the first of a two-part episode, we'll hear from Airman First Class Larry Sutherland. After almost being court-martialed, Sutherland was given a choice between staying in North Dakota or going to Vietnam. He chose the latter, first joining the other bad boys of the Air Force for brutal training in Hawaii, then deploying to Vietnam as a security policeman tasked with protecting his base from surrounding guerrilla forces. According to people that know me, I was in love with it my whole life. When I was a little boy, I'd watch Steve Canyon. I wanted to be in the military my whole life. I thought I'd go into the Marines, and my uncle dissuaded me from it, who had been in the Marines, and he says, the Air Force is what you want, Larry. Uh, when I turned 17, November of uh, 66, I went to the Air Force recruiter and asked him what I needed to do so the day I graduated from high school at age 17, I would be in. He says, get your folks to sign this, this, and this. And I took the test. I think it was in the winter of 67. I was due to go in on delayed enlistment because people were trying to avoid the draft by going in the Air Force. So they had waiting lines to get in the Air Force. It took me from when I swore in to when I went to basic three months. So I was always three months ahead pay-wise of all my peers. But I was enlisted. I was in the Air Force at 17. I thought it, it sounded romantic. I thought the Steve Canyon thing that I'd be around all the high jet, the high priced jets and the fighter pilots and all oh, this would be so cool and I'd love it. And when I got to Grand Forks, I thought, oh, B-52s, what a neat airplane. Well, it took you about two shifts of garden them out in the snow. You didn't ever want to see one again. Uh, lost the romance real fast. Grand Forks was the turning point. We hated missile security. Guys like Sutton that got into missile security had a nice warm camper, could take a book out. We in missile, I mean, aircraft security had to hump B-52s in the snow, and it was miserable work. So we were out driving around one night, and we thought we'd get even with the missile weenies. So we went over and uh, jumped the fence, lifted the lid on the access door, and spun the combo. And that set off an alarm in uh, um, the launch control facility 20 miles away. And so, well, they, that could happen. A rabbit could run across the top or something. But when we went to the second missile silo and did it, B-52s were taken off out of Dias, Texas, and out of Grand Forks heading for Russia. It's a true story. And the this rumor went around is that they shot and killed us trying to do number two. But what happened is a guy dropped a lighter that had 804th SPS. Dave the loser, <laughs> and that was the first guy they caught. And the dominoes went down after that. I was uh, up for sabotage and court-martial, and when the case was over and I was found innocent, I was offered supply or Vietnam, and I took Vietnam. As a matter of fact, in a bunker in Phan Rang, somebody was talking one night about they shot three guys trying to break into a missile silo in North Dakota, and I says, I wasn't shot. We didn't break into it. We just spun the combo. Two guys went to prison, and I went to Vietnam. No, I had my 
my volunteer statement in for Vietnam, just like Sutton, the rest of us, we wanted off that base. Sutton was not in trouble, by the way. He was, him and Jack Klein were one of the ones that first volunteered. But the word got around fast. You wanted to get off that base. They were looking for meat. And uh, so I got on the list. As a matter of fact, Jim Benton, he got over, passed over. He never told us his father was a general in the Air Force until much later we found out. He, that's the only time he pulled strings. He called his dad and said that somebody was getting paid off to keep him from going to Nam. And uh, the next day he had orders and he was sitting next to me on the airplane. And uh, we made it and he got our wish. <laughs> We were told that we were going to go get a little bit of heavy weapons training, but the unit that we were going into had, this is the rumor, was that 75% casualties were expected and our life expectancy was supposed to be 15 minutes in combat. And that was the rumor going around in Grand Forks, so it was before. Yeah. So I basically volunteered for a kamikaze mission to get out of North Dakota. From the day I hit Hawaii till the day I got home from Vietnam, I was sure I was going to die. I am positive. I know that feeling that I was never coming back, that this was meant to be. This was going to be my swan song. I was sure. And the way everything they were telling us and, and led me to believe that that's exactly what was going to happen. I wanted, I was always had a, a fascination with firearms. And I thought, if I'm going to go into the service, why not try to get close to something with firearms? So I thought, uh, why not be a cop? You can carry a piece. And I, I knew that if you flunked out of any school, they made you a cop. So I thought, well, I'll just volunteer for it and not have to worry about flunking out of any school. So they took me um, and I get up there and the stars in my eyes, I thought, oh, this is going to be great. And it was the worst. It was, it was worse than Vietnam. It was brutal. It was intense. If you got five hours of sleep a night, you were sneaking it because they ran you from five in the morning to one thirty in the morning every day except Sunday. Every day. Uh, Saturday, you had half a day off. But usually everybody was just heading straight for the bars just to dull the pain or to numb the pain. I know it won't make it on the TV, but that was one alcoholic unit. I mean, you got an education at that place. And that was it. It... All I can say is they were the most sadistic, mean bastards I'd ever seen in my life or since. I could not believe that anybody could be so mean and hateful and in all ranks from two stripers up to the officers. They just hated us. They treated us with such contempt. And when I, I told you before, this is true, when we did the Coley Coley March, you watch the scene in From Here to Eternity where they make him, Monty go up and down the uh, Pruitt, Robert E. Lee Pruitt go up and down Coley Coley Pass twice. Every one of us has felt that because that was the killer. That was the march. I can still hear him, keep your intervals, don't bunch up, get off my shoulder. And when you fell out, and, and guys did because guys were dying of heart attacks, they went over and pissed on them. That's the kind of people they were. They were pissing on dying people. I saw it with my eyes. I can see it till the day I die. It happened. The cadre, that's what they called these guys, the cadre. They were the instructors. So there were guys that actually died in the training? Yes. Uh, heart attacks. So they'd send these guys, you know, for instance, if you were getting rid of the worst you had, you might take some of these fat boys and send them off to Hawaii. Well, you'd get these master sergeants. These guys were eating pretty good in the chow hall. They were really out of shape. And you try, they tried to work us slowly into it, but it was get down and give me 10 all the time, run everywhere you went. You never marched. You ran double-timed everywhere. And every time your left foot hit the ground, it was kill, kill, kill. And we were animals. They turned us into the meanest bastards they could make. 
And the proof of the pudding is on graduation night, we burnt cars in the parking lot. We tore up the barracks. We went, McNamara Cadu and I went to Wheeler Field and caused a riot in the Airmen's Club where we were disarming the cops as they were coming through the door. We stole a deuce and a half and ran the gate. The Hawaiian guard jumped out of the way to keep from getting killed. Neymar and Cadu were like the cats in Jammer, worse. They, Truman Capote said about the two characters, by themselves they were incapable of anything, but together they made a monster. When I read that book, I thought Cadu and McNamara, because together, and they were never apart, they were monsters. And everywhere you went with them, like whether it was tearing up the Wheeler Airman Club or it was shooting water buffalo, you knew trouble would follow. Those two guys were unbelievable. And I've never known anything on TV, in movies, or books since that compared to those two guys. They had heart. They were brave, fearless. Neymar is the meanest little bastard you ever seen, but he gave you faith and courage and hope. You never saw him afraid. And he isn't afraid today. Out in the parking lot the other night, he's challenging the cop that's driving by. And I go, that's the old McNamara I remember. He was as mean as a box of snakes. and uh, But I'll tell you what, you felt better having him around. He did, because he made everybody want to go to war. What happened? I'll tell you a true story that Colonel Fox at Schofield Barracks marched us as a formation to the base theater and made us watch The Devil's Brigade when it came out. And prior to the movie being rolled, I never paid to see The Devil's Brigade. We saw it as a unit. And he says, this is what you guys are all about, the best and the worst. And that's the truth, because they some squadrons sent the best men they had, some sent their trouble cases, and I was one of them. McNamara was one of them. Blue was one of them. Tom Ryan was one of them. We were all the bad boys of the Air Force. Instead of prison, they gave us <laughs> Schofield Barracks, which was just like prison. You can call it a garden spot of the Pacific. I saw the butthole of Hawaii. That place it was awful. Lieutenant Karbowski's group was the group I was in. That was the 28 men. That was heavy weapons section because we had other sections that just drove QRTs and guys that were basically like light infantry, but we were the heavy weapons guys. Um, I got there May 23rd. We graduated, I think it was August, or we left country August 27th, or left Hawaii, Schofield, uh, Hickam. They kicked us off Schofield for the last three days. They put us in a hangar to keep us away from everybody. We were sequestered. We were junkyard dogs. We were just mean. They had to keep us somewhere. So they put us in an open hangar on Hickam, bunk beds on the hangar floor until an empty plane came through and they could get us to war. We were uh, at a fever pitch. I can remember Coming into Fanrang wasn't such a big deal. We were all psyched and ready for that. And we knew that Fanrang was the base camp. We come in the C-141. I remember getting off the plane and they found a flatbed truck to throw all of our bags on and everybody's got their, their jungle fatigues on. And we, I think Kadu was right. We had a bus. We get up to the base camp, which was the old 101st area. They turned it over to us. So we were, we were probably about two miles away from the main base. As soon as we're offloading our baggage... The Koreans opened up next door with 155s, 105s, and everybody went horizontal. We didn't know it was outgoing. We thought it was incoming. And as soon as we went horizontal, every all the old timers were laughing. We could hear the laughter, you know, from the guys that had been there a while. And um, that was harassment fire, nightly harassment fire. But they wouldn't tell you when it was going to happen, you know. And uh, that night, they, I guess they saw us unloading bags and they thought they would do it then. 
I, everybody that you've talked to has mentioned that story, but it's true. And that was like, I would say about eight o'clock at night, nine o'clock at night. The next morning, up, get ready to go to play coup. And that's when we started hearing the horror stories. And you know how it gets through a unit fast. You know, that, it, that we weren't going to where it was going to be nice. They were surrounded. They were getting pounded continuously with rockets, mortars, and recoilless rifles. That they um, uh, were too close to the Cambodia uh, and the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And it was true. You could hear rolling thunder at night. You're sleeping. You could hear the buffs out there working along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. I was resigned to my death. I knew I was going to die, and this was the way it was going to happen. All I was trying to figure out was how it was going to happen. It was said that on the ship that traveled to the POW camp, the conditions were so horrible and the hold was so crowded that men would simply die standing up. Letters from My Father is a new docu-series podcast starring Jack Quaid from Oppenheimer and the Boys. It's the story of one woman who retraces her World War II veteran father's steps after he was captured by the Japanese and kept in one of the most notorious POW camps and had to find a way to survive. You can find Letters from My Father from Voyage Media anywhere you listen to podcasts. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. They lined us up on the uh, runway there, getting us ready to go to play coup, bring up, brought a C-130 over to put us in. One man was so paralyzed with fear that he collapsed. And they, uh, Sergeant Taylor says, pick him up and throw him on the airplane. Well, he regained his legs in flight, but he, he could not walk. He was trembling with fear. We um, got on the plane. Then Taylor was telling us we were going to come off the plane shooting. And so we're all psyched up. We're all scared to death. It's like uh, D-Day for us. You know, we're flying over the channel, basically. But instead, it's the Central Highlands we're heading into. It took about half an hour, maybe, to get there. I remember the back door opening up, and I thought, what's going on? We had already landed, and I didn't know. It was the C-130 was such a nice glide that when the back door opened up, I saw runway, and I said, we're here. So everybody's... 
jacking rounds into it, putting it on safety. And as the plane stopped, Taylor had us come off on both sides, come around and secure the airplane. And we're all ready in position securing the airplane. And that's when the aerial port came in with their uh, skip loaders and they're laughing at us. And about then I heard the whap, 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 and I see the diving board and the swimming pool. And I thought, this isn't going to be so bad. About six hours later, I found out different. But it was, uh, Taylor had us psyched. He had us ready to kill coming off the plane. And it was very well done. A beautiful deployment coming off that plane. And if you read the after-action reports, it says August 28th, 1968. B-Flight, Heavy Weapons Section, 822nd Combat Security Police Squadron arrived today. Well, the prior unit that had gotten in there before us, the uh, first safe side unit that got in there, left such a bad impression on everybody. Left such a bad impression on everyone that was there that what they had, when we showed up, they figured we were just more of the same. I can remember walking up a street, trying to mend fences with the 633rd, telling this guy, we're not such bad people. We're just like you. We only went through more hell and training. About that time, I hear thump, 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 and it's Mar Barracks, and I'm looking, and this guy comes flying out of the second floor door over the handrails, super cop, and he's got his arms out like Superman, and he lands flat in the mud and knocked him cold. And I looked at the friend, and I says, well, there's still some of us that think we're pretty cool. And there's, I've got witnesses that really happened. The guy could have killed himself, but I, I heard him running the full length of the hooch on the second floor. Thump, 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 thump. Super cop! And he was flying through the air. He's the one that passed out drunk on me the night they came through the fence at Fanrang and wouldn't wake up. And I had to defend the position myself because he was drunk. The alcoholism was rife in that unit. Unbelievable. Uh, Sabota, Ed Sabota, died of cirrhosis of the liver. He had cirrhosis of the liver when he was 21. It was, uh, it was madness. It was so bad, Colonel Fox had to stop it. And he had to put out a edict that anybody caught drunk would be sent to prison. Well, we were driving. They gave us the Jeep with the 50 caliber, went right to work. Quickie One. Uh, the original name was Rat One, but Taylor didn't like it, so he changed it to Quickie One. So we get into Quickie One, Tom Ryan, Stinky, and I drive around the perimeter, and an A1 Sky Raider came back, and it still had ordnance left on its wing. Well, they couldn't land with live ordnance, so they'd drop it off the, per off the perimeter. And when the bombs went off and the napalm was rolling, <laughs> threw the helmet on, went for I don't smoke, but I took a cigarette and was puffing on it. And uh, then I started hearing the horror stories about what happened at Tet when Pat first got to Pleiku. And it, we realized that this is the real McCoy. This is the real thing. And it wasn't a couple of days before we started having. And you could see at night when you drove by buildings, you could see the holes, the shrapnel holes in the side of the building from the rocket attack. It was weird. It was like, like a Christmas tree looking building from all the lights coming out. And it was what they were, were uh, shrapnel holes. And I thought, hmm, looks, looks like they've seen some action. And it, it didn't take long before we started seeing it. You could tell all the newbies because they had all the crisps, you know, looking new stuff. The old timers look like cowboys with the quick draw holsters and the uh, Montagnard bracelets and the uh, accoutrements sewn onto their gear. And, and you would stand guard mount right there with the 633rd Security Police Squadron. And then they would, uh, the sergeant would come out and give you the local intelligence report. I cannot think of a night he didn't tell us we were surrounded and we're going to be hit that night. 
But we knew the good intel came from the Mamasans in our hooch. They would tell you when you're going to get hit. The hooch maids were contract uh, civilian employees that came and did your laundry or did the dirty work on base. And they, you paid them $5 a month to iron your fatigue, spit shine your boots, make your bed, do all that. So you could focus more on your job instead of trying to be GI sharp. And they were there. Uh, they would come in at six in the morning and leave at four in the afternoon. And they would beat your clothes on a rock with uh, water poured over it from a hose. I mean, no washing machines. It was real primitive. But every uniform got that red pleiku mud in it. And it uh, that was the neat thing when you came back from there because you had this kind of pink patina to your fatigues that said you'd been to pleiku. And some of us call it uh, red clay commandos, pleiku commandos. They're pleiku cowboys. Pat Dune's one of them. The mamasans would say, I say, mamasan, you uh, shine my boots, you make my bed tomorrow? I said, no, 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 come tomorrow, VC hit tonight. They were right. They would be right. And they said, we know work tomorrow. VC hit tonight. And like Caduce said, it was between the 19th and the 23rd that you had the bad ones in the beginning. That's when they really put it on you. As a matter of fact, when Johnson stopped the bombing of the North, it was two weeks later. We started getting them like every other night. When I heard him say he wasn't going to run for president, he was going to stop bombing the North, my heart sank. We were all sitting around the radio listening to that because we knew what was going to happen. We knew that a quick bomb in the north, that it was going to put that much more supplies on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and the Ho Chi Minh Trail was a half-hour drive east of uh, west of us. So we knew that they were going to start resupplying the VC, and the NVA would start hitting us harder again. I have the photograph I can show you. It was a huge fireball, and I was standing at night on the runway because they didn't take off or land at night. The runways were closed. You didn't want to put runway lights on during a rocket attack. So it's blackout on the base. The rockets are impacting. I'm looking around. I'm thinking a 360-degree John Wayne movie. It's like Cinemax. I'm just loving this. And uh, um, when it finally um, hit that fuel bladder and the explosion happened, the concussion knocked me down. And I could hear shrapnel whistling through the air. And that's when I did the low crawl into a bunker. That From that point on, it became real. Then I realized it wasn't just a movie. It was real. This was really happening to me. It was, it was beautiful though. It was the night pitch black and then the colors coming off that fireball. And here I was 18 in Vietnam. Wow. Never seen that before. As a matter of fact, Colonel Fox in his book, our commander wrote a book about air base defense and he shows a photograph of that POL area. And he says the most poorly designed base in, in Vietnam play coup. And he says, because it was so vulnerable from all sides. You felt like you were just a duck in a shooting gallery and uh, you just trying to, maybe it was just better to find a deep hole instead of running around. Now, if you were in the uh, Quickie One or in a QRT, you weren't in a bunker, you were racing to the vulnerable areas. But if you were in a bunker or in a, a tower, you just had to gut it out. That was a, one of our Rangers sayings, it's just gut it out. You know, just tough it up, just like George did, tough it out. It won't last forever. Well, for one thing I found out when I went through, and they let everybody pick the specialty, or you could volunteer for something and they'd determine whether you get it or not. I picked 50 calibers because I heard it was not an off-base weapon. It was not something you went on patrol with. So I realized, talking it over with a few other guys, that if we picked 50s, we'd pretty much be able to stay on base and not have to go off-base. 
Then we get to Vietnam, and we were one of the few specializations that got to be used, where all the other guys, like John, who was the sniper, they made him a QRT or put him in a tower. Guys like that that trained hard and knew their job weren't allowed to do it. Well, the regular security police never went off base, but one of the things we were supposed to be trained for, the Army got tired of chasing down our VC. They wanted us to chase our own VC down. So we were trained to where we could go 30 miles into the bush and go get them and wipe them out. The first 1041st did exactly that. They brought back prisoners. They kidnapped VC officers. They were pretty good at it. Uh, but they, the only thing they allowed us to do, one time uh, we did go off base and did a total perimeter sweep out into the boonies looking for launch sites, uh, weapons caches that were buried underground. And um, it took all day long to go completely around play coup. And the unit did it. The 822nd did it. And when Colonel Fox heard about it, he was furious. I don't know who we hated more, the PCS units we were stationed with or our NCOs over us, the higher-ranking NCOs. And the officers weren't much better with the exception of Lieutenant Karbowski. And you hated, you felt like everybody hated you. The local security police, the VC, your officers, your NCOs. There wasn't a friendly face anywhere. You just felt like, well, if I've got to do this prison tour and it's six months, I'll get my Figmo calendar and just gut it out. So, uh, but it, and then it extended. We were the first unit to actually get a PCS tour. Most safe side units went over as TDY. We got PCS. So we did the longest tour over there. We had the most KIAs that uh, we could turn in for credit. And, uh, but we, we saw them, uh, the worst of it. When I uh, was sitting over in the POL area and uh, I saw the, um, rocket hit our barracks and I knew my buddies were in those bunkers and I thought they're dead when I saw the explosion I knew it was my barracks and I was probably 200 yards south of it and it was they I put it right on us and what they'd done was somehow sighted in on our where we used to build our bonfires every night and they put it right in the barbecue pit and blew it all to hell and gone and collapsed the bunker that half the barracks was in one bunker, half the barracks was in another one. That bunker collapsed on top of Cadu, McNamara, Johnny Coke. Uh, Cesar Garcia was on his knees praying to Jesus to save him when the rocket hit. And uh, we're trying to get a hold of him. He won't answer. But um, that was a tough one. That's uh, That was the come to God time. That was uh, They should have died. It's got Jesus only knows why we didn't lose them all. And it was a 122. It was a big crater, a huge crater. And uh, John Coke immediately <laughs> crawls out of the bunker and goes and gets souvenirs out of, the, <laughs> out of the, the crater. And he got the biggest, hottest piece of shrapnel for his souvenir. He still got it. Jesus and training saved us. The Reverend Ranger Jim will tell you. I truly believe that with all my heart. That was AC-1 Larry Sutherland. Next time on Warriors in Their Own Words, Sutherland talks about the assault on Fan Rang and being tasked with holding protesters at bay in New Jersey. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. 
Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rule Hoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.